You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the founder and president of the Libertas Institute, an award-winning free market libertarian think tank located in Utah with a mission to advance the cause of liberty. He's the author of 37 books, including the popular Tuttle Twin series, which have sold over 5 million copies. Named one of Utah's most politically influential people by the Salt Lake Tribune, Connor's leadership has changed over 100 laws covering a wide range of areas such as privacy, government transparency, property rights, drug policy, education, personal freedom, and more. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Connor Boyack. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a bit about your background and tell us a bit about the story of the Libertas Institute. So my background is I have no formal training in anything that I do. <laughs> I, I have kind of been a self-made uh, guy both in a political sense, uh, not a lawyer, although I pretend to be one often uh, able to hold my own. I'm not an economist, although I teach economics and entrepreneurship to kids through our Tuttle Twins books and other programs. Uh, I am a kid who struggled with public school and really didn't fit in well, uh, not culturally, but academically. I I really didn't like being forced to memorize stuff. I, I hated having to pump and dump, right? Fill my head full of random stuff to just regurgitate it and then uh, rehash it on a test only to soon forget it after. So I struggled all through uh, through school, through college. And only after college did I discover a love of learning. Uh, when I had the freedom and the flexibility to focus on what I want, I i mean, even I, I shocked myself that I loved learning, uh, reading, you know, economics books when in college, Econ 101, man, I got like a D. I, I hated it, all the you know supply and demand curves and everything. I just I didn't like it. But when the material was presented the right way, when I had the ability to pursue information that I found personally relevant, uh, I flourished. And so I didn't go back to school to pursue any degree. I just started reading a ton, a ton, a ton. Uh, that led to blogging. It led to uh, social media. It led to writing my first book. Uh, it led to networking and you know supporting other organizations and eventually starting my own. It became this very organic process where I realized that I have talents and interest in this area of, of persuasion, uh, changing hearts, minds, and laws. And while my formal education background didn't really get me on this path, after college, I found it and I have really fixated on it ever since, trying to identify how can I make an impact in, in our community, in the world? How can I change people's perceptions? How can we change laws and you know help business owners and help families? And uh, it's just been an amazing journey for me, but I'll, albeit a very roundabout one because I you know, ended up being a web developer when I left college. That was my, I was in computer stuff for like 10, 15 years before I found my way over to this uh, other, shall we say, industry or path of life. And uh, it's just been a joy ever since. Okay. And can you tell us a bit about the Libertas Institute? So we are what you would call a think tank. We're a public policy organization and we exist to uh, change laws. Uh, so our goal is to try and identify 
laws that stand in the way of entrepreneurs or families uh, and uh, work with elected officials to either amend or repeal those laws. We've been around for about 10 years. We started in Utah, which is our home base, uh, focused all at a state level. So these are state laws and regulations or local ones as well, just not federal Having done that for a number of years, we've changed over 100 laws. Many of them were the first of their kind in the entire country. And so two years ago, we started expanding across the country, helping elected officials in other states uh, pass you know, uh, legislation based off of the research and ideas that we've generated. So we've transitioned more into kind of a national footprint, still working at a state level where you can actually affect a lot of change. I I have no hope for Congress and all the inefficiencies and perverse incentives that are uh, there that just keep things so fundamentally broken. Uh, but at a state level, you can actually accomplish a lot. And so that's where our organization focuses, really trying to be an advocate for the little guy, for the you know small entrepreneur, for others who can't afford teams of lobbyists and lawyers. Uh, our think tank is kind of the fill in the gap there to help you know, small business owners and others advocate for, you know, the problems that they're having and try and, uh, uh, from our kind of more libertarian free market angle, try and remove some of the regulatory roadblocks and uh, restrictions that are impeding their ability to go flourish. So I actually heard of you, Connor, and also the, the Libertas Institute um, as as a Young Voices contributor. That's that's one of the, the organizations that you guys sponsor. Um, where you were you were sponsoring pieces on regulatory sandboxes, so I, I think it's obvious that you guys work a lot on, say, the the advocacy and and uh, liberalization front. Um, but can you walk me through, say, the process um, that it takes to to actually take something like an idea um, and and turn it into a piece of legislation that gets passed? Sure. Uh, let's use the regulatory sandbox as the example to, to work through. So uh, the very short version of this is that a regulatory sandbox is a law or kind of a pilot program allowing business owners to be shielded from a particular law or regulation for up to two years. So let's say there was a law passed 30 years ago that says you can't do X and X is precisely what you want to do in your new business model. You would be able to go to the regulators, apply to come into the regulatory sandbox, and with you know routine reporting and oversight, you would basically be exempted from that law or regulation for a period of time so that you can go demonstrate to elected officials like, hey, we can actually get rid of this law and things will be fine because, look, we've been doing it for a year or two, so hey, can we go change the law? It's a great way to help. Uh, elected officials make data-driven and evidence-based decisions. So rather than speculative, like, oh, if you repeal this law, all these horrible things might happen. Instead, they can go do these little pilot programs and show elected officials exactly what the impact of these regulations are or what the absence of them may or may not do. So uh, three years ago, maybe four now, our team uh, came, kind of came up with this goal. We wanted Utah to be the first state to have a regulatory sandbox. We did not uh, create the idea. Uh, it started in the UK in 2014, specifically for fintech. So with you know cryptocurrencies and other things, there were all these innovations in financial technology where the UK set up this uh, sandbox and other countries started to adopt it. And then Arizona and Utah became the first states to do this. I believe it was 2019. And so our team said, well, why are we allowing this kind of innovative uh, you know, path forward only for financial technology. This should be something for every industry. 
So we, uh, as a team internally, had a bunch of strategic planning sessions where we said, here's the goal. We want Utah to be the first state to have what we call a universal sandbox, meaning any industry, any business, any vertical. And so uh, what we did is we uh, hired some researchers. Uh, We did a lot of polling to kind of figure out where the public's perceptions are. We um, we drafted a, a model legislation. So internally in our organization, we kind of worked up. Here's what we think it ought to be. We had a lot of meetings with stakeholders. So this is you know regulators and elected officials, trade associations, uh, the governor's office, things like this. For this particular example, it was right during COVID, and so everyone's worried about economic recovery. How are we going to help our state? And so it was actually a timely project in this case, because we could go appeal to elected officials and say, here's an opportunity to attract entrepreneurship, investment, innovation by you know, planting this flag and saying, we welcome the disruptive entrepreneurs who want a more flexible regulatory environment. So we developed the talking points, you know, what arguments we thought were going to be most persuasive. We uh, brainstormed which legislative sponsor would be the best quarterback. Um, which is always very important, uh, who your quarterback is going to be. We went and met with leadership uh, in the House and the Senate uh, to kind of get them on board. We actually pitched them on making this like a key plank in there. Uh, every year, typically, legislative leadership will say, here's our priorities, right? And, and that kind of sets an, an agenda for the legislative session. We got them to include this as a legislative priority, which signaled to the whole legislature, hey, guys, you know, leadership thinks this is important, so we're going to do it. Uh, the bill ended up passing unanimously. Uh, everyone supported you know, Republican, Democrat, and everything in between. Uh, it was widely perceived both as a way to boost economic recovery, as we intended, and then also, as I mentioned earlier, it was perceived as a way to empower elected officials to better understand the impact of their laws by having this little program where those who rub up against them can go get exempted from them for a year or two and then show whether or not that particular regulation or law is needed or needed in that form. So they liked it as an ability to have a feedback loop back to the legislature to better understand what might need to be refined to better support businesses and families. Um, so from there, uh, the governor signed it. Uh, very happy to do so. We had a, a big signing ceremony. Uh, to kind of celebrate it. And then in that meantime, or since that time, our team has been attending a number of legislative conferences for state legislators all around the country to advocate for these sandboxes. So we've now gotten 20 plus states to introduce legislation. About a dozen have passed uh, because we've been able to connect with uh, legislative sponsors from other states and provide them our model legislation, our research, our talking points, our experience, our videos, and everything else, which gives them a leg up to then go recreate and do what we did. And so that, that's at a very high level. That's kind of what we did. A lot of it is just strategy, brainstorming, and relationship development. Who do you know? Who can you get passionate about this? Who's the right quarterback that has good relationships with their colleagues? Uh, so a lot of it is our team just putting in the work to know uh, which relationships to leverage and who the right people are for a particular issue like this. Okay. So, um, outside of your, your policy advocacy work, um, you also have a, a wildly popular children's book series called the total twins. Um, many of which actually focus on synthesizing canonical Western texts like the Leviathan, the road to serfdom and others 
um, and, and to say narrative stories for children. So can you tell us a bit why books like these that teach children specifically about, say, free market and liberty-oriented ideas are, are necessary and, and what your vision is for the, the Tuttle Twin series? So this started because I wanted to help my kids understand what I do all day at Libertas Institute. I literally went on Amazon. I went looking for kids' books to talk about you know, property rights and free markets and the like and came up short. Uh, my partner, Elijah, and I, he's the illustrator. We said, hey, let's uh, let's just do a book. That might be fun. We both had young kids. We created the book. It was based off of The Law by Frederick Bastiat, um, kind of this classical liberal founding fathers-esque approach to law and justice. Um, and a lot of people bought it. And it was a self-published book, fun little side project. There was no vision at the time at all. Uh, but we did another book uh, based on consumer demand. Then we did a third and a fourth, but it was still just this fun little side project. But what we started to hear from the community was how essential these uh, resources were for their family to help their children develop critical thinking, to help them understand the, uh, the world a little bit better, to have some amazing like family discussions about real world ideas rather than just reading fluffy stories. Especially in recent years, as a lot of uh, children's literature and even media uh, entertainment like Nickelodeon and others have become injected with all kinds of woke and political uh, perspectives, a lot of parents, especially right of center, have become concerned with that and want to find ways to share what they believe is true with their kids. Um, and so that's where the Tuttle Twins can be a resource for those families. We talk about uh, various civic, historical, economic type of ideas. We talk a lot about money and entrepreneurship, business and personal freedom. And uh, really what this boils down to is um, parents like the Tuttle Twins materials because they see that it's sparking a lot of aha light bulb moments for their kids who are frankly learning things that a lot of adults don't even know. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we cover in our books aren't really taught in school. Uh, and so parents either use this as a homeschooling type of uh, material. Half of our audience are homeschoolers. The other half, their kids are all in public school and they recognize that not only are their kids not being taught these ideas in public school, in many cases, they're being taught ideas quite opposed uh, to these ideas. And so for those families, the Tuttle Twins becomes a sort of counter agent or, uh, or a supplement, perhaps, um, to help counteract or, or provide contrast against what a teacher or textbook may be saying uh, so that their kids can, again, develop that critical thinking and kind of challenge what they're being told by others and evaluate even what their parents are telling them. Uh, really, we're just trying to raise bright, entrepreneurial, critically thinking young people. Uh, ostensibly, that's the purpose of the education system. It has miserably failed. Uh, so enter the Tuttle Twins to try and help. And, and ultimately, that's kind of the mission. So your your latest uh, Tuttle Twins book focuses on teaching U.S. history to children, um, which surprisingly enough has, has become quite a, a polarizing topic in the past few years. Um, personally, learning history in school, I felt like there was a lot of emphasis on the what and, and not so much on the why, um, which, which is exactly what uh, I, I would prefer younger children actually learn. You know, I'd much rather have them know the Enlightenment reasoning behind natural rights and a Republican form of government, these things that are so integral to the American ethos, rather than, you know, no names and dates from the Civil War, for example. Um, and the way that society has always taught, um, you know, these complex and nuanced and intricate values to children has been in the form of storytelling, um, which is which is what your book attempts to do. So, Connor, I, I wanted to get your perspective uh, on what's wrong with the way uh, American history is typically taught today and, and how we and when I say we, I mean, both schools and parents should be doing it differently. 
I think you just hit the nail on the head. Uh, history education in America is done very passively. It's literally like kids are walked through an American history museum and they're able to observe a number of relatively interesting things. Look at the uniforms they used to wear. Oh, look at the cannonball that was once used. Oh, here's some hardtack that the soldiers at Valley Forge had to eat. Here's a parchment that uh, that they would write on. Okay, kids, let's go to the cafeteria. You know, time to move on. And it's this very superficial, uh, you know, passive review of histor- historical factoids and tidbits. Uh, this theory may sound overly critical, but it was substantiated by our team when we bought about a dozen history texts, uh, social studies books for fourth to eighth graders, the ones that are predominantly used in you know most of the public schools across the country, probably 80% penetration. We're reviewing all these books. We're looking through how did they talk about you know exactly the Enlightenment theory, the natural rights philosophy, the early founders, uh, all the kind of Judeo-Christian influence that they were relying upon, the Greco-Roman influence, the the different ideas and debates and all these different things. All of these books that we reviewed did a phenomenal job at teaching superficial factoids, like this chronological data dump of who said what and when and where uh, and you know where they traveled and who fought who and, and who won. These books all tragically miserably failed when it came to teaching substantive history, the ideas, the why, the philosophy, the values. And this is especially problematic from our perspective because we're all familiar with the quote, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. The the tragedy is that none of us do anything about it. Like our society, like we all have memorized that quote, I don't know why or how, but everyone knows it. And yet we don't operationalize it. Why? Because we're not teaching as a society, we're not teaching kids to learn from the past. We are teaching kids about the past, again, passively, superficially. And no wonder then that from, again, my political perspective, our society falls into a number of similar economic fallacies and political traps that have happened in decades and generations past, you see these people who survived, you know, communism and the Soviet Union, and they migrate to America, and they're so grateful, and yet they see the rising generation repeating many of the same missteps that led to the tragedies that they experience. And they say, oh, no, it's different this time. You know, it's not going to happen. This historical illiteracy and ignorance really undermines our ability to achieve societal progress. And so what we're after in our Tuttle Twins book, it's called America's History, is an attempt, as you said, not to just focus on the what, but to talk about the why. Why were these things happening? Why were they debating these ideas? And more importantly, perhaps, how it applies to our world today. So at the end of every chapter, we say, okay, here's the idea that they were debating, or here's what you know the conflict was about. How does that relate to our day? Because if we are going to avoid repeating the, the mistakes of the past by learning from it, we need to help young people learn how to learn from history. They need to be given examples of, oh, here's this concept or philosophy or idea or whatever from you know 100 years ago, two, three, 800 years ago. Here's an example of how we can learn from that and apply it today. Ultimately, that's the whole point of history. The whole point of history is to better inform our lives today to make better decisions. And it's just not how kids are, are being taught history today. And, and so for us, America's History, this first uh, book is in a volume of four books that we hope to publish over the next few years to cover kind of all of uh, American history. We may get more broadly eventually into world history and other things, but we're going to focus on early American history and then go from there. 
So finally, to finish off today, I, I wanted to ask um, you to tell us what, say, a liberty-oriented listener perhaps could do to get involved in making a difference in their communities like you have and get more engaged in the political process. Uh, I would point your listeners to an organization called State Policy Network. This is a national organization of think tanks like mine that work all over the country. Their website is spn.org for State Policy Network. Once there, you can click on a directory, click on your state, and you can find the groups working in your backyard. Uh, you know, some are more effective than others. Some are more, you know, broadly focused. Others are narrowly focused. But find who's working in your backyard. Subscribe to their email list, social media, go to their events, you know, ask to volunteer, start to engage with the people who are doing this full time every day. They'll have loads of ideas for ways that you can get plugged into what is happening in your community. The other idea that I'll share is uh, I think the most effective way to get involved politically is not to vote. Yeah, you get a sticker. Yeah, you feel good about yourself, but you accomplish statistically nothing. The best way to get involved uh, for the busy person, excuse me, is to uh, organize a cottage meeting. Gather 10 or 20 people in your living room, provide some snacks, and invite over whatever elected official most suits you. Could be a city council person, could be the mayor, could be a state senator, right? Could be a school board member. And just say, hey, look, I've got a group that I'm going to organize. I'd love for you to just come and talk for 20 minutes about some key things happening that you're working on and then take some questions. And what that does is it transforms you for two reasons. The first is you see that you have the capability to be an organizer, to build relationships, to cold call a politician and say, will you come speak to my group? They're egotistical. They, they will totally come speak to your group. They want to get FaceTime with people. And so you'll, you'll be transformed in that process. But secondarily, you will have developed a relationship. All change happens as a result of relationships, whether it's getting media attention or fundraising or political change, getting laws passed. It all boils down to who you know and how well you know them and how likely they are to do what you want. So you have to get into the business of developing relationships. Just dip your toe in the water, right? Even if it's five people at your house, even if you're just calling the mayor and saying, can I take you to lunch once? I just want to you know, pick your brain on something or get to know you more. But when you organize a group of people like that, they're going to see, oh, this person's a connector. Oh, you're kind of a community activist. Maybe maybe I, maybe I ought to pay attention when you call. Maybe when you text me and ask for me to vote a certain way, I ought to pay attention. Because if you could organize 20 people, maybe you can organize 2,000. And I better, be, I better pay attention to what this person says because they're more than just a random voter. There's someone who's a little bit more involved. Doesn't take a lot of time, doesn't take a lot of effort, but it has an outsized impact because you're starting to get into the game of building and leveraging relationships. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Connor. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.